episode of Why Theory. As always, I am your host, Ryan Angley, joined, as always, by co-host Todd McGowan. Todd, how you doing, buddy? Good, Ryan. Can't wait to talk to you today. Can't wait to talk to you as well. And this is a long-term request, kind of like last episode was, like going back all the way uh, into earlier days of the podcast. We're picking this up. We're picking up our our series where we do a uh, well-known essay of Freud's and a lesser-known essay. So uh, the lesser-known one will follow this up, keep you in suspense on what that is. We do have it. Or do you want to tell people? No, no. We have. uh, Let's keep a suspense because otherwise no one's going to (laughs) listen. Fair, fair enough. So this one, as you can tell from the title, we are talking about the uncanny. Uh, this is a a really uh, interesting episode. Uh, episode, I hope so. A really interesting uh, period for Freud because this essay comes out um, in uh, nineteen nineteen. It comes out ahead of the uh, the revolution in his thought that occurs in nineteen twenty with the development of the death drive. However, uh, it has already happened. It just hasn't been published yet. At this point. So Freud has written Beyond the Pleasure Principle, but has not put it out yet. So this essay, uh, The Uncanny, which references a compulsion to repeat, it's the first time that this formulation is going to occur in his writing, uh, chronologically speaking, but uh, philosophically speaking, it occurs after uh, the development uh, of the drive. So, and there's just a little bit of taste of it, and you can even... It's just really cool formally. You can even tell, I mean, we're going to get to this. You can even tell how much of a break it is in his thought because he drops the repetition uh, compulsion in and the, the, the compulsion to repeat. He drops it in in one paragraph and then there's a line break and then it's like the death drive it, and it falls out of the essay like entirely. It's really, right. really interesting from that from that perspective. So uh, well, we will uh, isn't we'll co- it clear we'll that, that but well, yeah, jump in. Yeah, no, no, it's just clear that like he's revising something that he had already written yes. because that's how it works. When you're revising something, you add a little thing in and then you're like, oh, well, OK, yes. I'll just make it fit with the rest of the stuff. <laughs> so I think I think that's I think you're really it's a it's a perspective, uh, perceptive point on your part, because I think it really it's clear that he just adds it and then it it doesn't it, it doesn't really fit. It. I mean. Yeah. Maybe you well, could yes, you could say this, yeah, it's yeah. suggested, but but ba- but it really doesn't fit in. I think it's really it's a, it's a good it's a good point. Although I also it makes you think, wouldn't this have been a much different essay if he had written it three years later? Right? Yeah, like, I agree. Then it then you would see the way in which the entire concept of the uncanny might be reducible to an instance of death drive or what we'll try to work through how the two interact because it's not just like death drive is always uncanny, right? Like there's, there's some, there's a need for the terminological distinction. Otherwise it seems like Freud shouldn't have written it. I mean, one thing I would also say is it's not an accident that this is the popular. We Mm. always do the popular and the, or the, the rare unknown or whatever, uh, essay by Freud. Uh, because I think it's, it's, it's a con- like mourning and melancholia. It's a it's a concept that really, unlike death drive, yes, everybody can accept it, right? Yes. People talk about the uncanny all the time, and they don't even. I don't think most people would mind referencing Freud, although I think that what he talks about is uncanny. Most people wouldn't want to credit as uncanny or, or credit mm-hmm. that as the source of uncanniness. But nonetheless, I think people talk about oh, Freud, uncanny. It's not a Freud morning. I think mm-hmm. it, unlike Freud death drive, which makes people recoil. Yes. Uh, yes. Having the 
it's not a the reaction they have is this is similar to the 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 experience of the uncanny, but it is not itself an uncanny reaction, right? Like there there's there's right. something also that that ties that together. It's uh, just for like basic basic definition, like uh, and this is a bit of a paraphrase. The uncanny is, and we're gonna have to uh, unpack this. Uh, just to put this at the top, it's a disquieting recurrence of the familiar. Okay, and that very very important. It's uh, the the uncanny. A, a lot of this is important. The recurrence, the idea of repetition, and the familiar, uh, and that it should be disquiet. All of all of this, all these terms, we'll need to uh, uh, need to do more with and unpack because it's important to see how they work together. So I'll just say it again: a disquieting recurrence of the familiar. This is of course like this is a huge thing in horror. Is invoking the, uh, the the uncanny. I mean, this and it, it's it's um, but it is di- it's different. I, I think it's different in Freud as it from when it from how it plays out a lot in in horror films. Um, like so, one of the things that is uh, that Freud does talk about is the uh, and the, this is from Otto Rank is like the idea of like doubling, like of a like of an exact repetition being disquieting and i think in horror film i don't know that there's a better example than the twins in the shining right yeah like the you know so and it's uh so there's a whole there's a whole horror horror angle here is that like that some kind of repetition this this kind of like recurrence should uh disquiet now the important thing is the familiar so let's like Let's just start a little bit with that, and let's do a little bit with the word because the word that Freud uses in the German is unheimlich, which right. uh, would be literally translated as unhomely in right. English. Right. So the the you in the English but that would not be do, accurate. That would not be accurate. But it wouldn't. It would not be accurate right. in English. It would be. This would be a, a totally like. It would be a very strange usage of the, of the term. Right, and even the term, like, Heimlich and homely, you, we don't use homely in that. <laughs> if you say, if you say, yeah. my, my, <laughs> my, my parents used <laughs> to say about people that they had a certain yes. homely look to them, and that, that yes. was not a compliment. But no. we, I think <laughs> Heimlich for Freud means, it's a com- I mean, it's a, good, we, it's a good feeling. You feel at home right. there. I think we would yes. say at homeness. I mean, we wouldn't say yes. that because no one ever yeah. talks like that. But that's what it, you would have to say it like that. Feeling at home. That's Heimlich. Yeah. Ho- right? Homey, so not, not homely. Homey. Right? Like there you go. There you yeah. go. Homey. Yeah. There you go. Which I it's, don't know is a it, real it, word, but it, but people no. say it. People do say it. Yeah. It's yeah. it's really interesting. So it's a great word choice. And, um, you know, Strachey's about to commit the... Uh, uh, the sin of of translation in making uh, drive uh, instincts, um, it, yes. you know, for for stuff a, a year later. But he really nails this here. Um, in when I say instincts, collapsing instinct and trebe to both mean instinct. That's the that's the sin he commits, as we've talked about many times, and a lot of people probably know. But just in case it's your first episode, yeah. uh, dr- drive the important term for Freud is collapsed into the word instinct, and so it makes it seem like his which he idea, distinguishes very carefully. Right? Very so carefully in the German, yes. yeah, because drive is that which exceeds biological necessity, and instinct right. is a more of a biological term. So, on this occasion, however, uncanny, uh, he does pretty much nail it. And but but I want to. It's stress, a great. I think that's one reason why people like this essay yes. by Freud. I think is that the translation is so good. 
Yeah, it's but it's also I want to stress the like the contingency of it because I went through this with 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 you um, before we recorded this. Like I'm gonna yeah, go, very go, good. I'm gonna go through the yeah the OED a little bit on this because it's really really interesting the 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 trajectory of the uncanny as a as a word and like Strachey slash I mean I mean I would say Freud but Strachey really like alters the the trajectory of this word um, and its meaning. So okay, the first usage uh, of the word in English originally Scottish and Northern, uh, it means a uh, mischievous malicious. Okay. And this is an obsolete and rare usage of the, of the word. Then that's in 1596. So 1638 from, so between 1638 and 1825, it's used uh, to mean careless and incautious. So this was a common usage of the, of the, of that word. Um, around that same time, there was also, this is an obsolete usage and may have been maybe perhaps more local, but it meant unreliable and not to be trusted. Okay. So that's from 1639, 1724. We've got some, uh, entries on that. So then next definition. So those are the first three. This is the fourth one of persons, not quite safe to trust. Okay. That's pretty good. Or have dealings with as being associated with supernatural arts or powers so now we start to get a little like at the edge of the uncanny as Freud's going to talk about it again this disquieting recurrence of the familiar then he does talk we're going to talk about this in literature and how good he may or may not be at reading literature in this particular essay but the um the idea of the like of the supernatural uh in in the literary is important here and it's of, of course important in in horror so yeah so that's the fourth definition this starts to take root in 1770s into the into the late 1800s uh which is going to be around the time that freud is alive and thinking right and uh and yep. just and being being a person uh okay so that's not quite safe to trust or have dealing with or and being associated with supernatural powers then this is the common understanding from around 1850 forward, partaking of supernatural character, mysterious, weird, uncomfortably strange, or unfamiliar. And so this is the so that's the first time around the 1850s that the, un, I, the word unfamiliar gets lashed in to, to this. And then uh, the other uh, definitions moving forward, uh, just to be a completionist about it, uh, in combination with uncanny looking, this is around 1860s, um, unpleasantly severe or hard. That's kind of like farther afield from, from this. And this is in the late 1770s and then, uh, late 1780s and into the 1800s is dangerous and unsafe. So like it's, this is a take by Strachey to do this word choice. And he's, you can see like it's, it's in the air a little bit. Uh, it's becoming common to talk about the uncanny and like mysteriousness and weirdness. And then also these senses of it being like, unsafe and and dangerous but it is this like this insistence on home and the familiar that the word doesn't have naturally and i i think it it, it it's it becomes calcified by how freud talks about it and how straight she translates yeah it. Uh, yeah that's so really I, good yeah. don't you think it's an, it also is a word where the thing that it's negating canny like is a little bit like Heimlich in the sense that it's Heimlich has the Heimlich also almost means sometimes unheimlich, right? Like it, it also means Freud goes through these definitions, right? Concealed, kept from sight, something withheld from, so mysterious, right? So it's both this thing that's comfortable and intimate and also this thing that's mysterious and strange. And I think Mm -hmm. canny is the same thing. Like you'd say he was a canny, guy you would like there's something 
mysterious about the person, right? Like something yes. not known. And I think so it's a, it, that's what really makes it a perfect translation choice because it has, it's one of those words where the, the two, and it's, I'm trying to think, you know, so many German words do this where the, the word almost means it's opposite at the same time, which is why Hegel <laughs> thought it was a, a dialectical language. But it's not yeah. that common in English. But I think this is one of those cases where yeah. that, that's what makes it such a great choice is that, un, that canny itself is almost already uncanny. Yeah, And I think yeah, that's like, really crucial because it's not for Freud, as we go to what the concept means, right? For Freud, mm-hmm. it's not just strangeness. It's also strangeness that's proximate. Like it has to be both those things at the same time, which is why I think it's such a, for that aspect of it, I think it's a really good concept. It's almost like Freud's own notion of the Hegelian dialectical speculative move, right? Where the thing that is close to us is also, it goes out into the other and is foreign. Mm. But it's almost the opposite gesture for Freud, right? It's almost like you see this thing that seems strange and then something about it says, wait a minute, that's actually really intimate and close to me. So first it's un, and then it's Mm. Heimlich, right? Like, I think that's the, that's the move that, that, that the essay makes. And I think that that's the nice dialectical dimension of it. You can, I I love this point of yours. I, um, like one of the, the only, um, I don't know, arenas in which I hear the word canny used is to describe like the skill of athletes. But I was just going to say that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it is also the case that when people say like he has canny skill with the ball or whatever, like canny, whatever it is. But I think it's just as often that you would hear someone say uncanny. You know, like to like to describe right. the exact same right. thing. So just right. to, like for for your point, and I think that it, it's on this, it's on that knife edge, that like of why the ter- the term works. Like I, I like how you how you put this. That like first it's it's un Heimlich and then it's Heimlich because I, I think that you, I I was a little in rereading this. Like I was a little um, I, w- I was convinced to make this note to myself that like where uh where heimlich was unheimlich shall be but i also <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it, exactly you could do it the other way you can do it the other way around and i think that's why how why the term works the way that it does it's not a it's we'll talk about this a little bit later but it's not like this um it's not a progression like if you've ever seen the chart of the uncanny valley where you start with something that's okay and then it some becomes not okay and then it's like then I guess it's okay again in this like right. in, in this right. this graphic like that's it's it's not a uh, it's not a spectrum that that Freud is 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 designating like I I do think it is I do think as as an idea it has this this dialectical edge to it where like something something can like the the strange can the strange the strange is familiar and the familiar is estranged you know like like I, I think it, right. it, it operates on on this on this pivot um, and and that's that's what it calls him. That's that's why he's called to to talk about it, and it's one of the. I've I've mentioned this before that like one of the things that that gets um, I think a little bit ignored in this essay. So I would like I'm I'm happy to like extrapolate on this is that in the first sentence what he designates. I mean I'll read it is that this is an aesthetic inquiry, but that's I think it, it kind of undercuts a little bit what what he's about to do. It's like he says this. It is only rarely that a psychoanalyst feels impelled to investigate the subject of aesthetics even when aesthetics is understood to mean not merely merely the theory of beauty, but the theory of the qualities of feeling. So this is like, what he's going to do is he's going to start from this 
position of aesthetic inquiry to to uh, the way that I, I I tend to approach aesthetics as a wide category that is, mm-hmm. is existential and not yeah. simply surface. Not like we're not looking at like surface and style and the uh, appearance and presentation of something, but what it's um, you know uh, what the the weight of this is at the at, a, at an ex- existential level, and that's what Freud does in this essay. Is he he starts from this position of from aesthetics, from even from literary analysis, and brings this into like the realm of ordinary human experience, and. Try, tries to get at this thing like what 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 is this feeling and it'd be you know it'd be easy I think to to class this as an essay in negative aesthetics but like I, I think it's important that he's that it's aesthetics proper yeah because I, I yeah. like it's not like like I think what he's trying to do is that like the category of aesthetics if understood uh, chiefly as a as a theory of, of beauty it also needs to hold this underside and that's what makes it a dialectical concept and not separate not a binaristic one where we have aesthetics is understood as theory of beauty and then aesthetics and negative aesthetics is understood as like the uncanny or things which produce disquiet or disturbances or whatever freud is making this like a singular dialectical category yeah um, but don't that, you think it's strange like a lot about this but yeah go ahead go ahead yeah. don't you think it's strange that he he says i know psychoanalysts rarely talk about aesthetics because isn't the entire interpretation of dreams an aesthetic analysis of the dream? I mean, I, I just yes, of course. I, I find that very <laughs> strange, and like he, uh, that just seems is this, a, I, I this is a set that doesn't include itself. I think. Yeah, I just, I yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I just don't, I don't get that really, and I because I think I, I, I guess it just becomes especially evident now because interpretation of dreams had such an influence on how people read and interpret film, right? Like, so that that mm-hmm. seems like a very important way in which aesthetics is part of the psychoanalytic uh, way of theorizing, not something that it's doing external to itself. So I think that's, right. a re- that's important. And then I think, uh, I really like what you're saying, that Freud is, like, too often aesthetics has to ignore something crucial and that's what freud Freud, of course he's always interested in what's repressed what's not Mm -hmm. what we're we're not paying attention to and here i think i think he provides in a way i think one of the typical ways of theorizing horror is that it gives us an encounter with something that's foreign and then that's Mm -hmm. that's that's scary to us right Yes. And I think Freud nicely can I just, said... Can I just interrupt? I want you to continue. Yeah. I just want to interrupt yeah. with the very famous Lovecraft quote, which is... Yeah, good. H.P. Lovecraft. Good. The, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. And I think you're... you're Okay, so that... Um, that is the we'll, prevailing theory of... That's the horror doxa, right? Lovecraft yes. is the... Yeah. Is the, the sine qua non of contemporary horror, and this is, the, this is his... Idea, and I think I think most people think that that, and and this even becomes, of course, even the people that object to it, they still. It's interesting, I think, because the people that object to it say that's not the unknown. What I'm talking about is the fear of the immigrant. Let's say, right? Like, the, so yeah. the fear of the immigrant in maybe everywhere in the world, uh, but it's yeah. it's but especially let's say in 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 
North America and in Europe. Uh, it's interesting that it's always this couched as this fear of the unknown, right? We don't know what's going to, what this, this thing that's foreign is going to bring to us. And I think that for, that seems like in keeping with the Lovecraft notion, there's some, this is, it's like a horror film at the border. Right. And right. I think and he was Freud, a ra- he's a racist and a misogynist. He's a racist, right. So of that course. Fits, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Of yeah. course. But Freud would say, uh, well, no, actually, you cannot, you're not afraid of just the, un- we're not, a- he, Freud does not accept that. He doesn't think we're just afraid of the unknown, right? He thinks yes. you're only afraid of the unknown when it has this proximity or yes. recalls to you what's already known and experienced by you, right? So I think yes. that's a really, to me, yes. that's a, that's like Freud, the height of his radicality. And I think it's also Freud really at the height of his most political, right? Like he's really saying, he doesn't obviously make any political statement in this essay, but he's, I think there's a clear political implication and a way of understanding the horror film that's in line with certain content, like uh, certain, you know, where the, it's very clear that the, the thing that seems external is only terrifying because it's, I haven't seen this movie, but hereditary it seems I'll like tell you if you're right or not. It seems like that the, the horrible thing in Hereditary is not that it's something unknown, but that it actually comes from the family itself, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that yeah. is. The, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. No, I, I've, I, I, I've had intimate <laughs> conversations about Hereditary. I will never, I will never see that movie. Uh, no, it's fine. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, it's uh, no. I, I love. I just can I just I, I love this point because what you're like. This is this is what I think what love. I, what Lovecraft does, I think, is kind of symptomatic. Is that like is it does to me uh, anticipate a little bit this the notion of the like the uncanny valley, which is like the farther away something gets from that which is known is like that's when we get into the scary territory. Um, right. And and that like and of course like again his it's it's hard not to for Lovecraft specifically it's hard not to read his views into that statement like of course this guy who was afraid of foreigners is going to say that like fear of the unknown is the like that's the primal fear but like this is like but that is uh, like operative in the horror genre and a lot of things so like it is clear that you know you could go with that and say like he he may be right about that even to people who consciously would disavow of course his his racism and his misogyny that there is something about the the unknown that is terrifying but where what what Freud would, I, I think, have said to uh, to Lovecraft is that it's not the unknown. It's when the unknown has the cadence of the known is yeah. when it's uncanny. And that's the like, that's a really, and, and to make, to bring to this political point, I think is really, really important. It's like, it's when the plight of the immigrant has the cadence of something that is mundane and familiar to you is at right. the moment that it is, uh, becomes politically expedient to reject the plight of the immigrant for a lot of people. Is when it starts to resemble when 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 the, the their 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 humanity cannot be ignored is what is the moment that it must most be in question, right. politically speaking. Right, 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 right. It's like it's like too bad that the immigrant isn't genuinely alien, right? I mean, <laughs> from the perspective of like political yeah, violence, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like that I think that's what Freud would say. That he would say mm-hmm. it it would be much easier to for the racist anti-immigrant to accept. Un- yes, if it was ge- genuinely immigration from somewhere right. yeah, else. Yeah. yeah, if it was just yeah. totally different, right? Yeah. Uh, that's. I think that's really, that seems like such a great point. And it, it does, what I like about it is that it cuts against my own 
tendency to think of horror cinema. We haven't done our special horror episode yet, which will no, be very hard for yet. me. Although I could, <laughs> it's funny, Hillary and I have this rule that uh, if it's 25 years old, you can see it. Like it loses oh. its, there's, and I, it's absolutely been totally true. Although we're coming wow. up, it's not that, it's like 10 years from now, paranormal activity will come into that zone. So I don't know. You've never seen it? No, I have seen it. And, and let me oh. just say, I will never, ever watch that again. And that's a film huh. where I was in the theater. And I'll tell you who, I'll name my friend who dragged me to it. I wanted to see some <laughs> stupid Jennifer Aniston romantic comedy. Hillary and I both did. We're like, let's say, yeah. he's like, oh, that's Classic. ridiculous. Let's go see this paranormal activity. I've heard it's great. And we're like, okay. well, no, I think, you know, we're not really. He's like, oh, it'll be fine. He's like, it's fine. And mm. so he, Ken Reinhardt dragged us to this. <laughs> Movie. I mean, and he he kind of he liked it. Apologies, Ken. Todd, Todd loves you. Todd loves Ken. Everyone. I love Ken, but this was. I mean, he traumatized me worse than like my mother has. So Good it really God. was. It was really terrible. And and we're at the movie, and Hillary and I, I. I I have this distinct memory. We kept looking at our watch every minute to see like how much longer <laughs> we have Come to. On. Endure. I really. I could. I still, if you, if I closed my eyes right now, I could still remember that film. And to Hillary, if I even say, you know, when she's standing by the bed, she'll like, she'll just shut up, don't stop talking. So it oh really, my God, it so really, funny. like, it works. So, but anyway, so our the, Come on. Not, nonetheless, I wanted, here's what I, the point I was ultimately getting ahead, to, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. taken sure. forever, uh, <laughs> is that I had a theory that horror was essentially as a genre. Racist, because it's okay. it's attitude. It says, no, I'm not suffering from an internal contradiction. There's just mm-hmm. this opposition between me and whatever my group and this external force that's out to get me. Sure, right. But I think that I think that that's wrong because I think mm-hmm. most horror films actually show the external force as an embodiment of the internal. Yes, right? maybe. I mean, yeah. Paranormal Activity, I think, even does this too. So yeah. even though I can't say, oh, this one's a bad one, because, I mean, the, the great horror movies, which I've seen, do, like, carry, it's, it's yeah. clearly yes. this internal thing that's manifesting itself externally, or all the, like, Mummy, or Werewolf, or mm-hmm. Frankenstein, all In- of those, Invisible right, or Man. Halloween, yep. it's this internal thing that's manifesting itself externally, right? So I think, in general, Shining, my God, <laughs> Shining is obvious, yeah. That that's true. So I think that that I think the best. I think there are horror films that do what I'm talking about, but every genre has ideological versions of itself, right? But I think I think it's I think it's wrong, which I would like to do, to dismiss mm-hmm. the genre as a whole as ideological for the reason Freud. I think Freud. I, I, as I was rereading this essay, I'm like, oh darn, I can't just <laughs> continue to dismiss the entire genre. It's it's like. Because I, I, I did feel that my position was even a little compromised in the beginning because if, if ever you hate a genre and then you find political reasons to dismiss it, I think you have to be suspicious of that, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I, 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 I hate, I've always hated eating fish. And when I became vegetarian, <laughs> okay. people would ask me, do you eat fish? I'm like, no, 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 I don't eat fish. I've given up fish as well. And Hillary's like, you've got to stop saying that because you didn't give up anything. You, didn't, you hated fish. <laughs> So and it's the same thing with, with horror. Like if I, oh yeah, politically we can't watch horror. <laughs> She's like, yeah. you can't say that because, of course, you don't want to watch horror anyway. So I think That's that, that but I think Freud obviates all that line of thinking. 
that's pretty good. I um so a, a lot to talk about when we eventually get to the horror episode. I do want to mention just because you brought up Carrie that one of our uh, listeners, great listener, Hey Joe. Uh, who I've emailed with before, the Carrie guy, who's like written the book on Carrie, Authority on wow. Carrie. On the DVD, he has a commentary track, the like the recent Blu-ray one. He's a he's a great listener to the show, Joe uh, Joseph Eisenberg. So I just want to shout out to him, just because you mentioned Carrie. I just yeah wanted to wow. want, want to throw that out there. Um, the I I do think you're right. Like I think that this is true. In I, I'm gonna just do a, like maybe just 20 seconds on the horror genre, even though like. The, uh, well, then we, that'll save us from having to do the damn thing. Right? No, so. we're gonna do that. We're <laughs> sorry, Todd. You, you don't. You don't get. You don't get out of it. No. Um, <laughs> but I. I even. I even think. I do think your your point is right, though. That like on a first blush, even some something, especially like Night of the Living Dead, it seems like ah, look at this external threat. But what's yeah. really cool and what you know the zombie threat, which they're not called zombies in that movie. They're called ghouls um, at that time. Although that is the uh, that is like kind of the first time. That's the parent that, zombie film, right? It is, yeah, because they are, and I will, I'll have to repeat this in the horror episode. It's the first time that, because White Zombie had been a movie earlier, but they were, um, it's that's racist in its depiction. So that kind of goes with your point is like they're under the thrall of like a, of a, um, like a Calypso, like, uh, I can't, I can't remember like, like leader, like that's, that's, that's the first time zombie is used. And so like, there's this, so there's definitely this, this racist thing there, but in like in night of the living dead, what's re- re- really, really cool about that movie in particular is that you think the whole time the struggle is, the, um, the main character who I'm forgetting, uh, and he saves this woman, they find this house and they barricaded it. And now they're like going to have a stronghold. It's going to be like, Oh, this will be the rest of this movie will be a castle defense against a zombie horde. And at exactly that moment where it seems like the tensions are all very clear, just a bunch of people emerge from underneath the stairs. And so then that becomes the tension of the rest of the movie. So it's like, what was you seemingly an external struggle becomes this like intrinsic yeah. and internal one. Like it's like, it was like, and this is the, 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 um, like in the nineties, the, like, I don't know how, I don't know how many times this happened to the point, but it became like a cliche where like you're being killed by a killer. I think it was screen that did this. And then it turned out the phone call Todd was coming from inside the inside house. the house. You know, right. I think it's, it's actually, yeah. isn't it a film noir that does that first? Oh, uh, probably right. Is it not? After isn't that? it like when a stranger calls? Yeah. I think. Oh, I think that's it. Calls, yeah, I think. I think that's that. The call ends up being the ultimate call. Ends up from coming inside the house. I think that's from right. inside that. Yeah, well, I, might, so that, I might be wrong about that, but I, you might I think be wrong. Well, right. we we'll have enough time to investigate it before we do the horror. Uh, yes, episode. We so but, we can say things that are wrong now because we're not now wrong. we'll <laughs> correct them then. Yeah. That's right. And they'll be uncanny later. So that's they what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. The So, but that, I think that's, that's important is to like, look at that, like that internal, uh, like that, I think that one of the things that's really good about that movie is like, it's, it's already, I mean, and that's also what's good about like, I mean, it's, it's obvious, but in Dawn of the Dead, like the, like the consumerist, uh, critique, like the zombies in the mall, like it, right. it, it, it makes it, that's what Romero's really good at. And that is that like, you are not so far from the zombie as you, as you would think that you would right. be in like in another movie, you know, like, so, uh, well, the zombie that. is also a local, th- I mean, this is a point that Hugh Mannon makes in his great essay on that film, that the zombie that Romero makes it a local phenomenon. Right. Then that, yeah. I think that tie that, that connects it to the, to the Heimlich and the Unheimlich, right? Like that's, yeah. the, I think that that's right to say that, that you can't just say that it's foreign because it's mm. always, it has this local dimension to it that I think is, yeah. is crucial. 
right? And that that helps make them that helps make the zombie a thing instead of just like I mean because there was a what would you, you'd call it like um, animated corpses. I mean, there's a very right. Todd. There's a very there's a very famous text that has animated corpses. Little thing. I don't know if you heard about it. It's called the Holy Bible. So I mean, like it goes back a long way. <laughs> like the idea of animated right. corpses. But but right. before the well, it's the, it, the why zombie isn't Christ? Thing, yeah. Why isn't Christ uncanny? Right. Like that. Oh, interesting. Like he's an animated corpse. But maybe he is for Thomas. Be, right. I th- me that's and that's why he that's why he doubts. Yeah, I think he is yeah. for Thomas, but not for anyone else. I think that that's. Yeah. I think maybe this this would be the thing just to bring us back to the to the essay. Like this is the. This would be part. Maybe this would be Freud's point, from the position of this essay is that Christ comes back exactly. He doesn't come back, a little different, you know. Yeah. And, th- and it's this. Yeah. It's that little. Like Zizek kind of writes about this. Like you know, this is the the premise of, uh, you know, a lot of Stephen King, it's like, you know, some, someone or something that's important to you dies and you bring it back and it's just a little bit different, Yeah, you know, like, so, or the, or the, the rites and rituals that, that have not been properly observed. They're just like, it's, it was just a little bit wrong. And I think that's the, um, that, that is the, is why Christ isn't uncanny except to Thomas. Um, it, it's, I, and in I, fact, I, I buy don't that. I'm not even sure his example. I don't even think his reaction should be classes. On I think he can't. Yeah, believe. you're probably right. He's back exactly. I think that's the. Yeah, so that's, that's why he that's, has to feel the holes, right? Like in, yeah, the, yeah. in the hands. Yeah, yeah I think that's. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I th- yeah. So, but the essay. So the essay. I I just would want to comment a little bit that I don't think it's it's not a great. How to put this? It's not a readerly. It's funny that it's a very popular Freud essay. It's very popular. Uh, yes. It's not very readerly, I don't think. First of all, he mm. goes through this, like four or five, I don't know, six pages of just definition. So like, here's yeah, all the etymology. Yeah, d- I, we don't give a shit. So just put that in a footnote. <laughs> uh, I think that's t- terrible writing. Uh, and then, and Re- then he, really quickly, listeners, if you think that that's just like, t- if you think that's not, a, this isn't a principle of Todd McGowan. You should see what he had to say about my book manuscript. Anyway, please continue. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now you get to get back at me to the whole world. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that is a principle. Don't quote. No, but it's good advice. But it, No see, one no, wants this, to no. ever read you quoting someone else, or they'll read the thing that you're <laughs> quoting. Never exactly. quote That's it's my good advice. advice. It's okay. good advice. I'm not getting back at you. I'm, I'm making sure people understand you're principled. Okay. That's it what is I'm a saying. principle. Yes. Okay. So then he, uh, okay, what does he do? Then, then he, so he goes through all of that. And then he gets to this uh, read. He's basically that. So that's part one of the essay, which is just really all mm-hmm. of these definitions. And then it's too it's it's too hard to read. It's like like just yeah. it's it is just summarize it, please. I, yeah, and, and, totally then, right. and then and then then he does the same thing when he he talks about this guy Jenched, who's mm-hmm. Jench Jench, I think. Uh, oh, that's right. Who's yeah? No, it'd be he's German. I think it'd be Jench. Uh, oh, okay. Whatever. Whatever. Uh, he's who, who has a reading of the Unheimlich, the uncanny in the story by uh, E.T.A. Hoffman, the Sandman. Okay. So mm-hmm. good story. I think Freud, well, we know the whole story because Freud basically quotes the entire story, uh, in his little summary of it, which lasts, how does that last? Uh, another five pages. So there's 10 pages <laughs> of, First the definitions, and then the, the short summary leaves it. No, it's not, a short, it's not short enough. You need it really short <laughs> if you're going to summarize anything. Uh, anyway, so, so he, his, it's a critique. That's, I mean, I, I think this actually is a fine way to start your own reading, is to take someone else's 
reading. It's the only reading that he knows of the uncanny by Yenched and, 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 and critique it. And basically for Yench, it's interesting how close he is. And this, I think there is this proximity between comedy and horror, right? Mm-hmm. That Yench is, 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 uh, is very close. Cause he, for him, the uncanny is when we, the, the, the animated and the mechanical, we lose the distinctiveness between those two, right? Like one, mm-hmm. one, the, the, anim, the, the living becomes too mechanical or the mechanical shows takes on features of life. And what I find interesting is, is this is exactly Henri Bergson's theory of comedy. For, mm. for Bergson, something nice. is funny when it's the human becomes mechanical. I mean, Jens is, I think, saying the opposite, that it's something that's mechanical becoming human, but still it's that, that movement that's interesting to him. And that's mm. Freud's point of departure for his essay, right? I think Freud's idea is that that is a that can be part of it, but it's insufficient, right? It's insufficient that it ha- mm-hmm. that really because the uncanny comes back to what we were talking about earlier, it has to be something familiar to us as well. How would that be familiar? Well, I think he for him uncanny is always bringing us back to castration and that'll connect to death drive, I think, yeah. but but I think mm-hmm. that that's the really what's really fundamental to him. And that's why he likes the story so much because it's about eyes getting taken out. Right. And so that's the, right. for Freud back in interpretation of dreams that even gets theorized that the, 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 the loss of vision, the eyes being poked out, he references Oedipus here, poking his own out. It's always a reference to castration for Freud. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And it's, it's uh, in that, in that reference too. like, like what's uh, what's important is it's not the, like it, I, I, you know, I, have, I haven't seen this uh, exactly, but it'd be easy to, I think, to say like, oh, this would be another example, like of a of a literary text where you see this the the repetition of the of of the edible, right? And yeah. that's he doesn't what he's careful with there is not is not like look that that that's not his ultimate point. What his what his point is is that the I think this is a little to me. I think it's it's a uh, more more interesting than just like or like what we joked about with succession if we just said hmm, you know it's a really edible television series like he's not just like it's not he's not just a it's not an application of something he said earlier what what he right. is 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 drawing out is that like the it's the the edible thing that is repeating is why does why does Oedipus pluck his eyes out is because he plucks his eyes out because he finally sees that's right. that's what happens and and it's this complete loss of uh assumed mastery that's what that's why he does that and that's what freud is is getting at here and i think this is crucial to his notion of the uncanny that i think is really easy to miss even like in that the definition i gave earlier the, the disquieting recurrence of the familiar mastery not in there castration not in there but that's what supports all of those terms like that's what's operative is this is this you're you're confronting something that is familiar something that you should because it's familiar have dominion or authority over but you don't and it's it's that uh uh, interacting with that uh element okay like that that is the that forward facing uh, making you reconcile your castration that 
feeling is what's uncanny, which is, which is why like, uh, not to, I don't know if this is too much of a sideways jump or a jump ahead, but like you'll see like in the, in discussions of, uh, in discussions of Uncanny Valley, I think this is pretty clear. Uncanny Valley, this principle that in like computer-generated imagery or like robotics or whatever, that like the the there is a point where something doesn't look human-like enough, and it's at this point that it's disgusting, and we reject it. This is the the idea, and this is um, from this is from nineteen uh, nineteen seventy text from uh, Masahiro Mori. Uh, this is the, the that's his concept. The Uncanny right. Valley. Um, and the, the very, very important difference. Which is, can I just say one thing? Which is psychological yeah. rather than psychoanalytic, right? I think it's yes. an important very nice. distinction. Very nice. Yeah. That's an important distinction. And the other important distinction is the the way that this, the, this idea, Uncanny Valley, is about a, it's about a deficit in the object. It's not about it's not about a deficit in the subject about castration right. in the subject so like i'll just this is in the wikipedia page and and this is a the, uh the polar express is robert zemeckis film from 2004 um is like a touchstone i've, I've seen this referenced as the as like the example of uncanny valley in computer generated cinema and a lot of different things 30 rock and anyway so i'm just going to read a little bit uh this entry on the uncanny valley page uh several reviewers of the 2004 animated film polar express called its animation eerie cnn reviewer paul clinton wrote those human characters in the film come across as downright well creepy so the polar express is at best disconcerting and at worst a wee bit horrifying the term eerie was used by reviewers kurt loader and um I believe that would be Manola Dargis, among others. Newsday reviewer John uh, Anderson called the film's characters creepy and dead-eyed and wrote that Polar Express is a zombie train. Animation director Ward Jenkins wrote an online analysis describing how changes to the Polar Express uh, characters' appearance, especially to their eyes and eyebrows, could have avoided what he considered a feeling of deadness in the faces. Uh, now, to pull together a couple different points, it was probably pretty boring to hear me read that quote when I could just have told you what the, uh, <laughs> what the, what the point is to support Todd's point. But I wanted to give that background so you know that this kind of critique is out there. The, the, uh, what everyone is saying is it's, it's, a, it's a problem in the object. Yeah. And, and that's, that is not what, what Freud is saying at all. In fact, I think that might even be why he moves the analysis of Sandman away from this quality of the doll you know, yeah. like not being lifelike enough to about the eyes, the absence the eyes, of the eyes, right. you know? And, and that's, so I think even in, in like in, in the, in the concept of uncanny Valley, it's, it's, it, uh, re-solidifies our viewing position of one of judgment and mastery. Like we're deciding that's uncanny Valley. That's not good animation. That's not good robotics. That hasn't achieved, uh, it hasn't it didn't get out of the uncanny valley, right? Yeah, exactly. Like it, it, right. it, which is a like a very, I would say, like that's a very phallic way of arguing. Like it, it is avoiding right. castration, uh, the, the the castration of the position, which is very important to to Freud's concept here. Well, I hate this word, but it's also a very normative way of evaluating, right? Like it, yeah. it present, yeah. and even if you look at the chart of the uncanny valley, it presents what does it say? Like healthy. Healthy, yes. uh, something healthy like health, healthy yes. body, right? As the thing that yeah. you want to get to, right? And I think once you take the idea of castration as the starting point, where the uh, of, of the way the body is constituted as a body, then there's no such thing as a healthy body, right? So I think Freud, yes. yeah, it's not that 
oh, we can escape. No, the uncanny actually, it doesn't, it's not a failed representation. It's <laughs> like he thinks Hoffman's great because he actually does successfully represent the uncanny, right? And, yes. and yes. the whole point is that you're, as you're, when you encounter the uncanny, you encounter the truth of your own subjectivity. That's your yes. point. That, that's, that's what you're, you've said again a couple of times in a really important way that it's not, okay, it's on the side of the object, but it's not a, mm-hmm. it's not, it is a failure of the object, but it's not a failure of the object <laughs> that it could have succeeded in doing. Right, right, it's exactly. a failure exactly. yeah. that reminds you of your constitutive failure as a yes. subject, right? And I think that constitutive is, of course, the key word. So it's not escapable. And I think that's mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. that's why psychoanalysis and that, that way of theorizing is not in the, I think it does have its own norm, which, but that would take a whole, you know, five episodes to talk about. But I think it, that's why it's not normative in the sense that uh, this, uncanny valley idea is okay this this point you're making about the uh freud trying to 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 interrupt what is well actually what what becomes normative in uh maury's account i think this is really really important like as long time listeners will know like you know one of one of my long-term uh goals and and projects is to um find the space for psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic theory in uh, disability studies. Um, and I mean, I, like my personal take is psychoanalysis is already a theory of disability, but that's not in the literature. That's, and, and it takes right. careful argumentation right. uh, b- because for reasons like this, um, I have read a piece, I'm forgetting who the, the, the author is, um, who, um, in rejects both Maury and, uh, Freud because of this, because of the, because of the healthy body thing. That from, comes at the end for Maury, yeah. Yeah, that comes at the the end of the of the uh, Uncanny Valley diagram uh, from Maury. But it is you if you were so if you read backwards from Maury to Freud, what you would find in the Uncanny essay, and I'm not going to read this because, as we have discussed, <laughs> too, too, you don't want to be reprimanded much. again. I by don't want to be. <laughs> no, I do not. But I do not want to be rightly uh, reprimanded by you uh, about that. So there is a there is a part where he talks about. Um, we're gonna come. We'll come out to talk about this. I think in, in a second. But he he says that there that fiction has more examples of the uncanny than reality does. But he does want to talk about a couple uh, examples in reality. And so um, he talks about uh, the experience of uh, he has a um, a patient who imagined and wished for someone they didn't like. If they imagined what if they died, and then they did. That being an example of the uncanny. Right. And then another. Uh, he talks about someone with uh, epilepsy, like the experience of, see- of of like seeing someone with epilepsy, like in their you know their body convulsing and losing control of their limbs. And what right. Freud is talking about, what he's on, like so t- to collapse what Freud is saying as uh, with with Maury uh, is a mistake. But you could see going backwards how you would get there. Absolutely. You, what, what what you would see is that like oh Maury says. The, like the healthy body is we're we're out of the uncanny valley and like then Freud's saying to see an unhealthy body produces this uncanny experience but the important thing I mean for Freud he's not endorsing this what he's saying what he is about is is that what how why does is this feeling produced okay like like what what happens and it's he's trying to understand why it emerges as a as a reaction 
because it does. The Uncanny Valley, as an idea, normalizes the feelings of revulsion. And you can see that in the film reviews of when people say things. And there's one thing that they always say. They always say there's like a coldness or a deadness in the eyes, which goes back to Freud's point about the ETA Hoffman story, The Sandman, about the eyes. And that, like, he's... What Freud is more about is as the observer we experience this loss of mastery this this we this castration anxiety that's what freud's talking about he's so this next thing i'm about to say it might might do it might do too much give too much credit to the point that that freud is making in brief but like it, it, he does talk about like the, the the people he sees who have um, who have, I mean, we would say disabilities, and he he treats them, and it's not like he's not patting himself on the back for doing it. He's not like he's just saying that he does it. But I, I think it's implicit in how he goes, works through the idea that like he sees that the uncanniness that an observer has toward a disabled body is a barrier to that person receiving care. And that that's I, I that I, I he's on he's on that side of the argument. He's not he's not on the, the side that like we need to traverse the uncanny valley to get to the healthy body. And now we don't have to have this experience. He's saying we have this experience. There's not a like like there's not a there's not a you know, there's not a morality uh, about it. There's not like we need to we need to to, to fight the uh, the. The, the the uncanny or, or like erase it or whatever he's saying like no this happens and what what happens when this happens and what it does is if you follow Freud's point it produces a, a an excuse to not engage and it puts because as we've discussed it puts a defect on the side of the object which is what's in Maury's idea and yeah. again if, if you read back from Maury to Freud you could you could do, you know, tell yourself that's what Freud's saying, but but Freud is on the other side of it. He he does he is not saying there's a defect in the object. He's saying a pr- when one apprehends something that produces an uncanny reaction, it is an encounter with one's own castration. So it's not a lack in the object; it's a lack in the subject. That's that's the uncanny for Freud. Right. I think. Yeah. I wonder what you think about this. So I I would think of it this way that. Rather than so the 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 psychological whatever way of approaching things would say, look, we need to stop thinking of the disability as uncanny, even though that's mm-hmm. an unconscious reaction, and instead think of it as the opposite, whatever <laughs> canny, which is also okay, not a problem. But uh, yeah. we need to, or to put it another way, we need to think of that there are multiple norms, right? There's not just one oh, norm. Sure. There's not just like that. that whatever kind of disability, that's its own, it has its own kind of norm. I think Freud's point seems to me almost the opposite. His is like, it's not that we need to think of disability or epilepsy, let's say, because his example I think is really uh, to the point. It's really important. Uh, As its own kind of normal. But he says we need to think of the normal as itself a kind of disability. I think that, to me, that's the absolute point that he's making because whenever he talks about neurosis, he always will say, well, the difference, he'll he'll even use the term the normal neurotic, right? Like as if there's no difference between a normal person and a neurotic person. And I think that's really, really, or just the slightest difference in that the neurotic has slipped over into being miserable out of this common unhappiness position that he associates with normalcy. But I think just to get to the 
the epileptic seizure, I think that's really important for Freud because it suggests the way in which the subject isn't in control of itself and consciously, right? You're like, you're convulsed by something that controls you. And Freud's point would be, well, everybody needs to take stock of how that's true of them. Obviously Mm -hmm. not, they're not undergoing an epileptic seizure, but they're being, he wouldn't put it like this, but they're being seized by the signifier in one way or another. And I think that's the, that's the thing that, that Freud gets at. So it's this, abnormalization of normality rather than yes. this normalization of the supposed abnormal. I just think that that's the difference between the Freudian trajectory as outlined in this essay and then the commonsensical or even psychological effort today. Yeah. In, no, the, to, that, to, how to Todd, deal with this. Exactly, yeah, you're exactly right. Like the, the move is, is the, like there, we need to see that there are many, there's a, there's a multiplicity of normalities. I, I think is is the that that is the, the the common move rather than like yeah I think this is really nice like I mean Freud even said I mean didn't we say didn't we say this in the it's in the uh, analysis terminable and interminable uh, essay I mean if we or, or I, I believe it is and if we did it is yeah, yeah. Oh, the, normality is an ideal fiction that's what yeah. that's that's yeah. the line you know which yeah. I think is is you know <laughs> that is what what is that that's four words I think you underline that and that's that's his position that like, I mean, it's the same, it's the same thing with like, he, he has, he has that long footnote where, uh, what's the line in three essays that that's added that, um, the, the exclusive preference for uh, the, the exclusive sexual preference, uh, for, uh, for men, men for, for women is a phenomenon in need of uh, explaining Me- meaning explaining, like, right. Right. Yeah. If, uh, meeting heterosexuality is, is, you know, it's needs an explanation, uh, right. that, that from, from what he understands, there's no, there, there's no, good reason for it to be so prevalent and so dominant. I like that. It's just, it's consistent like throughout his, throughout his I whole agree. career that, right. that he's, he's always on that. Um, and I think it's, you know, I don't know if this, if this moves uh, too, too quickly to another, to another thing, but, but like, I think this is why he, in this essay chooses to engage so much with fiction to ground the idea, because I, I think it is, you know, no, no, I can't. I can't think of a really. I can't think of a really popular uh, story where it's just like everybody's really. Everybody's really normative. Everybody's <sighs> super normative. Nothing weird happens at all. Not even a little bit. I can't. You uh, know. So like, it, it'd it be is a pretty boring narrative. It'd be pretty boring. So it, it's yeah. in. So it is always the, the realm of fiction where like there has to be something just minimally off kilter. You know, to, well, for, the for light has to fall. The, the 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 movie set light has to fall out of the sky, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice, nice, nice. I idea. mean, there has to be some, like that's the that's that's sort of the line of the Truman Show, right? Like everything mm-hmm. is his whole existence is perfectly accounted for, and everything goes fine, and then something happens, right? And yes, otherwise, it yeah. would be a bore. If we just saw Truman without the light falling out of the sky, it would just be, it would be boring. If right, we just watched un- the Truman Show, diet the, the way that people diegetically watched it, right, right. Like, there's a reason why the movie is about the whole thing falling apart, and not right. about like we don't just watch it and it's like fine. And yeah, R- yeah, right. And even I mean, it's interesting the explanation for why people are watching it is perverse, mm. right? That like it's a it's a mass perversity that they get to mm-hmm. watch this person who doesn't like they're enjoying his not knowing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's I mean, that's it's pretty clear that that and then someone the the 
the woman who comes to rescue him yes. recognizes the perversity and wants to save him from being this object of sadistic violence, right? I mean, <laughs> which is what it, I think what it clearly is. So I, yeah, I think that that's a, it's interesting. I mean, you're right. That would be, if you, we just watched the Truman show for two hours and be unbearable, <laughs> no one would go see yeah. it. But yeah. so we have to see it falling apart. And I think that's, you know, the films where even let's take a, one of the all time great boring films meant to be, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Chantal Ackerman, Jean Dielman, which is I, I, the film at the top of the currently of the BFI list of greatest films. But mm. she means it to be boring. But but part of what she's trying to capture with that is just the tedium of everyday life. But then mm-hmm. it, it even that has to break from that eventually to, you know, mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. So I think or, you know, Italian neorealism, I think, does the same thing. Right. Like it's it's showing it trying to depict the tedium of a certain life but then it has to it has to do something it has to denormalize that normal in order to make it make it a little unheim, unheimly right? yeah I mean, that's, yeah that's well otherwise, I mean, otherwise it wouldn't be enjoyable i mean isn't like i mean bicycle thieves it's, it's like it's so uh it's, it's not it's not it's not uncanny because like that's like you know that's where that's gonna go right like he's gonna have to steal the bike Right. I, like, that's just, so, I, I, like, that doesn't... Don't you think it's uncanny a little bit when he has to, when Bruno sees him arrest, caught and arrested? I, I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, I always go to with that film. I think we've, we talked about this before. I, I think what's interesting about uh, Italian neorealism, well, that, that film in particular is, like, that is the, um, that scene where he goes to church and there's, like, that, that big... Yeah. The, the the big singing number and i and then i i think the uh there is a um there is like a, a melodramatic idealism that like is at the heart of the i, I understand why it's called neorealism but like i I, th- I i think the um the i just think the the idealism piece is is, is so uh, important for sustaining yeah. the realist thing yeah it's, so, it's, yeah, it's, it's a great so point the, it's yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because Hillary just wrote a book on bicycle thieves, and her point is that without the melodrama, Italian realism would it just falls apart. So I think it, I didn't it's, know it's, that. It's a, your point, yeah, yeah, it's a good. Yeah. I think it's released even, but uh, yeah, I think that's the that's a, it seems that point seems really apt to me, and mm. you know I think just to come back to Freud and the. And the fiction, this idea that he says fiction presents more opportunities for creating un- uncanny effects than are possible in real life. I think there's a way in which we protect ourselves against the uncanny in every day in RL. And then <laughs> while we're in the fiction, we open ourselves up to it. Because just what we've been saying, if there's no uncanniness in, the, in what we're watching, I think we, it leaves us cold. Like if it's just... If it, it just feel it makes if we just feel at home in it mm-hmm. then we are left cold or if we just it feels totally alien then mm-hmm. we're left cold so it has to don't you think fiction has to truck with this position between feeling at home and feeling alienated i think it has yes. to be between that yes. i think yeah 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 no i mean i mean this is why like so i mean we you know we talked earlier about um about you know the horror film and for good reason because of the, i mean freud makes mention of the 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 word haunted right like uh in in the in the essay like like being uh a correlate for the phenomenon that that he's 
in, in investigating uh, with the with the essay, and I, I I think that like you in fiction, well, just just like I said, like something has to be minimally off kilter. Like a, a char- like a a character has to, you know, th- there has to be some experience where they're going along, doing whatever, and some something happens to interrupt the normal functioning. It's a little bit like um. It's wait. It's pro- maybe it's a reversal of the Bergsonian comic thesis. I right? think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's what has to. That that's just it. it it's not even. It's almost so banal. It's like not even. It's like not even like a. Not not even a point that like that you there just has to be some sort of like minimal no maybe there is this, you have to have a minimal uncanny encounter at some point in the in the fiction for there to be a story worth telling and for there to be a world worth engaging with and I I, I do think that that it is it's precisely this like opening up to a fictive world and then. I I don't I have never felt this way so one of the on the Wikipedia page it's just really interesting to look through the examples of the uncanny valley like the people who are quoted the the first attempted uh photorealistic cg animated movie like feature film is called final fantasy the spirits within which my uncle you've seen it my uncle frank took me to i saw it in the theaters took my sister and my cousin and i to see it and uh alec baldwin did it this was before baldwin had his uh renaissance with 30 rock um, and Baldwin was a voice in the movie, and I think it was seen as like, boy, his career is really over. He's doing a, a voice in this in this thing. And anyway, I remember seeing that movie and being like really enthralled with it. And I was being, I was really mystified by the. I was a kid, but I was mystified by the by the critical thing. And I and I, so I think there's a. I don't know. The, the, you maybe have to have the naivete of a child as a of a child to to just engage with these like of course they're dead eyes they're not real people like i like i don't even really understand this critique it's like the the the, the eyes are cold the like they like i don't i don't like what someone's saying is that like they they reached a point where they can no longer will the suspension of their disbelief well and but I, is it i aren't they saying instead uh i it's come t- it's 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 left of the zone of pure animation and and come too proximate to the to the human, right? Like I think, I mean, no one has a problem with Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse, right? Because they're true. right, right. Well, they're, that's they're on just the, so that's on far. The other they're end they're of so the, not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think that that's. I think it's that when it gets, like I think, isn't it? I, I wonder what Freud. He could have seen him. I wonder what Freud would have thought of the films of Buster Keaton because Keaton's films mm-hmm. are all about things that are inanimate. That mm-hmm. become, especially trains, become right. beca- take on their own personality even, and become yeah. almost like animate, you know, all human being, human subjects, right? And mm-hmm. I, I wonder w- what he would have said about that because I, I mean, no one has. I don't think people have this sense of the, the the uncanny with Keen. They laugh instead, but I think that's mm-hmm. the same operation, right? That yeah, that something inanimate starts to take on the qualities of being... I mean, it's because it's so far removed, I guess. Like, a train well, this, doesn't even look like a person. Well, th- th- isn't this it, though? Like, if you're supposed to laugh, it's okay. Like, like I, I just think that you made... That, like, that's the, the point. Like, if, if if Final Fantasy Spirits Within, at, just at a certain point... It was a comedy. a comedy. Then yeah. I don't think anyone has a problem. And it, yeah. it's... You know, if, if Polar Express 
isn't supposed to be a heartwarming Christmas children's film. I don't think anybody if, if it's just if it's supposed to be a comedy like a meta reflexive com- like comedy on on animated children's films if it yeah. is some if, if it's cynical about the thing it's doing no one has a problem with it but it's it's the like I I think it's it's at that point where you have to keep engaging with this thing that is you know like like I, I don't I, I don't un, I don't personally understand the reaction that it's like this thing is trying to get away with something I've said this before about a lot of different things like I like any any kind of species of that reaction is like this is this is like trying to make me engage with it as though these things are people and it's wrong and I'm gonna say something about it like I think that is just like I think that is is, is it, it's it's I just think Freud's right. Like it's it is a, yeah. a, a yeah. an encounter with one's castration anxiety. So there is a problem in the object. There's not a problem in the. I mean, in this case, in the viewing subject. Like there, there's. Or no, I can. And I don't say it's not a problem. I don't want to say it's a problem. But but it's it, you. You're not interrogating. You're not interrogating that reaction as arising from within. It's it's being produced by the object. That's right. The, I, I yeah. It, I, I'm totally with you on that. I'm totally with you that. I mean, Freud's point would be you can't really see it in the object if you didn't have it within. Right. That that would be his point. I I do want to say one thing that I think that's why people had a problem with that car film, Christina, oh. because it wasn't a comedy. Christine? Right. It was, I think it's just Christine. Christine, yeah. whatever. <laughs> Christine. Yeah, that's, that's really <laughs> the, funny. The Queen of Sweden. I don't know what I was thinking of. That's uh, okay. <laughs> But Christine, yeah, like it, it, people thought it was terrible because it, the the thing that became animated. So you can have that reaction, even to a thing that's like a train or a car. I think mm-hmm. I think it's mm-hmm. it's just the com- but in the comedy, I think it didn't. People didn't react that way. Uh, I do want to say one thing about Freud as a reader, and maybe you're gonna go <laughs> rush into his defense. Uh, okay, go ahead. Doesn't he? Like, I think he should talk about literature more. Or he, mm. I wish that he had, uh, but I wish that he talked about the story like he talks about dreams. And I feel like, correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, but I feel like his reading of the story is like a, he treats the characters like they're people and doesn't, yeah. and psychoanalyzes them and doesn't yeah. uh, talk about the narrative form at all. And then doesn't really talk about the effect on the reader. I don't know. Did you? Do you feel that? No, Do you think I'm wrong I, about that? Or no, no, I think I think you're right. I I um I, I think I I like I like this essay a lot, despite the like the despite the excessive quotation and despite this, and just despite dropping uh, repetition compulsion in in a paragraph and then line break and not going back to it. Yeah, like, yeah, I, that that to he, me is the biggest thing. But I, I understand why he did it. But I just yeah. wish you would have withheld publication for a couple of years. Yeah, and and then then have. Yes. Then, then I think it, it it strengthens his. Uh, I think it strengthens his argument because the, the 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 castration anxiety piece, like it goes, like it goes so it goes well. together. Yeah, it goes so. Yeah, because what? Because it, it it's. I, I don't. I can't remember uh, at this point now if we brought this up earlier. But if not, I'll I'll repeat. But uh, <laughs> I'll repeat. Compulsion. Repeat. <laughs> the that like you you might say that. You know, again, because the the uncanny is the object out in the world. Like, what 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 does that have to do with the the drive and the compulsion to repeat that is so like internal? And like, I think had he withheld publication and engaged with it, like, if, and also if maybe if the rea- maybe the, there's a, this is just so counterfactual, it's not even worth getting into because the reaction to the death drive was what it was, and as we've chronicled in these other ones, like 
he's constantly trying to couch it or like he depart is, from it yeah. in certain ways. Yeah. So maybe he wouldn't have done this, but but like I I, I think it's it's arguable and uh, consistent to draw that like what he's the reason why he puts the compulsion to repeat or why he's drawn to think about it is that like the uncanny is like having that that sense like he he has that like stupid example of like if you saw the number like 62 or whatever and but it happens twice in in short succession and you know that like like that it feels like the Truman show, but we don't experience the, these things like it, that they are just like banal happenstances and like they're utterly isolated. Like it, it seems as though there is something that is compelling this repetition. So it's the seeing, this would be my claim. Like, why is this in there? It's the seeing of like, like, like our internal functioning out in the world as, as, as though like by chance, and yeah. and encountering that, and that's that that's what produces the, the the feeling of the uncanny. It's like it's seeing the drive in the world. I guess is maybe the way that I that I would perfect. Put it. That's Thank perfect. You. Yeah, yeah. And he, if he that would be this is what you're saying. That would be engaging with the form, but he doesn't withhold publication. So I think he he can't say that because the beyond the pleasure principle isn't out. So what he's left to doing is what we tell students not to do, right? Like like don't. Don't psychoanalyze these characters like they're real yeah. people. Don't diagnose them, and or, or, or you know, uh, because that's not re- that's not engaging with with fiction. And, and, and it's not like, well, you know, this is a really unhealthy relationship. If they just broke up with each other, it's like, yes, of course, Wuthering Heights would have been a lot happier for everyone if they just like w- they had healthy relationships. But that's not that's not what happens in the right, thing. Right, so like, right. tell me what's there. Don't tell me what's not there. Right. Um. So yeah. So if. I, I so I, I think you're right ultimately. I mean, but but that that I guess is what I would say, uh, is what I is what I like about it as a piece is that there is just it is a little more a little more freewheeling, a little more open. Yeah, uh, it's not it's a little uh, it's a little more white album than yeah, the, that's uh, good. The, you know, like yeah. that's that's probably what I what I would say. Um, yeah, but yeah, the the well, the, you, the, you the, the I have to world, say, I, piece I have to say, so I've taught this many times. And I always thought it was good. And then I reread it for this show. And I'm like, eh. And, but now you've reconvinced me the other way. Because I was really turned off, I have nice. to say, by... I'm like, doesn't he know that how to do a psychoanalytic reading <laughs> of a text? I mean, what's funny is he can do it about about dreams and jokes and and, 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 right. and, and slips. And, and then, so come on, you can't do it with a literary work? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I thought, God, he says better stuff about Dickens in the letter to his to Martha than he does <laughs> right. about. You know, it's really that's really <laughs> true. true. Yeah, that is really true. true. It yeah. is really true. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, that's funny. Um, before before we do the lesson, can I uh, can I just uh, plug something because I meant to do yes. this on our last episode. Um, so uh, I did an. I did an interview with uh, the Zizek podcast and so on, which you and I have both been on and friends yes. of ours have been on. Uh, and it's a great, it's a great podcast. Uh, I have immense respect for, um, for the guys that, that do that. It was a great conversation. Ended up being a two parter. Uh, so I did that recently. I'll give you the link. Uh, so check that out if you're interested. We talked about seriality. Um, and, uh, that, and then this is a little bit, this is a little bit outside. So I mentioned Joe, uh, Eisenberg's, uh, the, uh, the, the guy on, on Carrie, the, the Carrie, uh, scholar. Um, yep. so, 
he, he didn't, it, it, I mean, this came up by accident. So he did, there's, no one has asked me, I'll put it this way. No one has asked me to plug these things, which is the, that's how I'm going to plug something. Is you just didn't <laughs> ask me to do it. Um, so this is a little, so this is, this is a bit out, this is a bit outside, but I wanted to do this because he's a big supporter of the podcast. So our podcast music, which you're going to hear not too far from now, uh, is, as I've mentioned before, was made by uh, an artist. His name is uh, Ben Levin, who's in a band called Bent Knee. Um, and the only reason why this music exists is because my friend Tim, Tim Doherty, is friends with that guy. And so he got he got me, you know, uh, in, in contact with him. Tim has a, an album that's come out on a, like a label, like a real label. If anyone has ever listened to uh, the band, uh, Nick Barsh's Ronin, this is my friend has an album coming out from this label. If you like if it's. So his music is not exactly like our podcast intro music, but it's not entirely uh, dissimilar. Um, but I will say this: if you like your avant-garde music, if you like avant-garde music, and you like your avant-garde music with like cha- with uh, challenging discipline and rhythms, and you 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 like it to be like a like a river that's like fighting the the rocks, okay? That are that are that are would interrupt its smooth flowing. If, that, if that's if that sounds like a kind of thing you like, or you like Nick Barsh's Ronin, should give my friend's music a chance. I'm going to put send Todd a little link. In the thing, his band is called Shibui, uh, and he just had an album coming out. So I'm, uh, as I keep talking, I increasingly feel like uh, I put I put Tim on the spot. So sorry, Tim. Uh, but that's uh, those are my those are my those are my things. That's the, the okay, those are the things I'm plugging. Yeah. Okay, so a lot of a lot of nice plugs. Uh, yeah. What's the lesson? Um. Well, I think there was a lot, but I don't. I don't. Um. I'm. Uh, I feel like I've been calling it out a lot. So I want to know what you what, what you got on deck for this. Well, for me, the lesson is see Carrie. Oh, yes. I think it's one of the great uncanny moments in cinema because it's weird to root for Carrie because she's not always doing great things. Uh, But uh, you do. So that's very uncanny. Nice. To see yourself in Carrie, which I think one does. Awesome. Great lesson. All right. Over and out, Ryan. Over and out, Todd.